Welcome. Today is June 14th, 2020. I'm Larry Castle. This is Ken Brown. And we thank you for joining us for episode two of That's a Good Question. So a few of our uh, Church Matters blogs in the last couple of weeks have dealt with uh, the upheaval that we've seen over the recent tragic death of George Floyd at the hands of a white police officer. And um, we've agreed that we would devote at least this episode, if not a couple episodes, to this topic. Um, you know, the topic of race as relates to Christians and the church. So, you know, as I think about this topic, I think about my uh, youth growing up. I grew up in southwest Detroit and um, didn't really have a, an awareness of the kinds of issues that we're talking about now and dealing with now, even though they existed back then. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it was, you know, we, it, was a, it was a fairly diverse neighborhood, though the majority was uh, white. Uh, there were lots of Mexican families and some, some black families. And especially at school, um, when I went to school in Detroit Public Schools, I rode the bus to the elementary school uh, in another neighborhood, a primarily black neighborhood, and so I had lots of black friends in school. My very best friend uh, from all of elementary schools uh, was black. And um, then when we got into upper elementary, those same friends rode the bus to the school in my neighborhood. And as far as family relationships go, we had tons of uh, friends who were uh, Mexican, Puerto Rican, African American. Mm -hmm. And so uh, very diverse friendships among our family. And the, the irony as I look back on it now is, is uh, with you know, a little more awareness, I can see some of the racism that even happened in those mm -hmm. relationships, even though mm -hmm. everybody was friends, um, just very different. And then now as I think through these issues, uh, try to filter some of that uh, into my experience now, understanding how uh, people of different races have related. And of course, now I've got the light of God's word uh, uh, to help me shed light on these issues. Mm -hmm. But as I understand it, you grew up not far from me. And yeah. uh, so tell, tell me a little bit about your experience. So I grew up in Ecorse, Michigan, right next to Detroit, right next to Southwest Detroit to be specific. So that's right near where you were. So long before we ever met each other, turns out we were only a few miles away. Uh, but I learned later that eCourse was kind of the wrong side of the track. So very often when I tell people who live around here that I'm from eCourse, I then quip that I live to tell about it. And uh, <laughs> I say that mostly for their benefit because really for me, I didn't know there was anything wrong with being from eCourse. Uh, it was a good uh, childhood as far as I was concerned. Uh, but it was also, it was segregated. And like you, I didn't really think about you know, the issues. It's just what you grew up with. But it was segregated in terms of geography, and it was segregated in terms of uh, education. And the one is related to the other because we had neighborhood schools. Mm -hmm. So if you didn't have, if you lived in a particular neighborhood, you went to the school in that neighborhood. And this was before I said I rode the bus to the school in the other neighborhood. No this busing. Was about 10 years before right. or so. No busing for us. So it was walk to school mm -hmm. and then walk back home for lunch, walk back after lunch, and then get to you know walk yeah, home from school. That was unheard of in my day. Yeah. I think kids actually can do that nowadays. That was a great time. That was a great time to have all that time off to walk back and forth and be with your friends. It really was. 
Uh, but none of, those, uh, none of those kids were African American. A bunch of Hispanic kids um, in my neighborhood, but not, no African American. In fact, uh, the city was divided. There was a road went right down the middle of the city, and there was one side that was black, and there was another side that was white and Hispanic. And uh, so we were segregated that way. We were not segregated in terms of sports. And thankfully, I had the opportunity to play Little League and to play hockey. And there weren't uh, many. I had some African-American friends who played hockey, but a bunch who played baseball. Uh, so I got a chance to interact that way. As I recall, there were no issues. It was all, it was all fine. One year, I was actually the only white kid on an all otherwise all-black uh, team. The uh, coach was black, and I've thought over the years, how did that how did that happen? I can see you know the the powers that be putting the teams together, somehow seeing that these guys are coming from over here and they're wanting to all be together. They decided to put them together, but we need a token white kid on this, <laughs> and we need somebody who nobody else really cares about getting getting rid of. So, <laughs> so I guess that's how I wound up. But somehow I got the memo that I'm supposed to be on this team, which turned out to be a great experience. My interactions uh, with the other kids was great, and we didn't lose a game that year, having nothing to do with me, having everything to yeah, do with Yeah, good thing with they said you, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so there was, there was that. I've had you know, that level as a kid of, of interaction. And then my mom is from Pikeville, Kentucky, and she maintained her southern accent her entire life, even though she was up here from the early 60s, but she still sounded like she lived down there. And one time I had one of these black friends over to my house and he heard my mom, introduced him to my mom and he got me aside and he said, hey, is your mom prejudiced? And I looked at him puzzled. I didn't know what he meant. He said, she's from the South. Does she like black people? Mm -hmm. And I assured him that she was fine. I had never heard my sweet mom say anything derogatory about anybody because of their race. Uh, but he, I take it, had been informed mm -hmm. that you know you need to be careful. Uh, he had been formed about racism in ways that that I had not. So, as a kid, that's about the that's about the extent of my interaction, though. Yeah. So, in last week's episode on a different topic, uh, we talked about the fact that it's really important to understand the background to our current context in which we minister to people. So, let's talk a little about that. You know, as we think about uh, race relations and uh, how we minister today. Yeah, it is important, like we said last week, to know what has gotten you to where you are so that you have a full understanding of the cultural moment that, that you're in. And so last week on a different topic, I kind of apologized at the beginning that it's going to be a little bit of a long explanation for that. This one, this topic, the backstory on this <laughs> goes back 400 years at least to the beginning of slavery coming into our, our country. It really goes back even 100 years before that, that slavery started uh, earlier than, than many realize. Uh, so I'll talk about that for a little bit. Initially, I want to say and apologize ahead of time that I'll try not to go overly long, uh, not so I don't lose you, but also I don't want to uh, insult anyone's intelligence. I know you all know uh, history and you know about uh, slavery, and so I'm going to recount some of that, remind some of that, maybe add some things that we haven't thought about in a while and, mm -hmm. uh, or maybe didn't, didn't know. And let me say as well before I get into that, that you know, it's not African Americans who are the only ones, of course, who have been discriminated against. That comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, why are we making such a big deal about one particular group 
when there are lots of other groups who have come over and they've been discriminated against too. Mm -hmm. You know, pretty much every minority has a story to tell about that and a story a of point. overcoming uh, that kind of discrimination. But here's a difference that the, the African-American community is the only one who didn't immigrate here of their own free will. Mm -hmm. They were brought over uh, by force. And so that's a huge difference. And then on top of that, as we're going to be reminded, you had a whole apparatus, a whole governmental apparatus around the station in which these folks who were brought over uh, forcibly were now uh, placed in. And so that's different than any other people that we've had. And so we need to, I think, treat it that way. So it starts at least as early as the year 1619. So just over 400 years, the Jamestown Settlement the first permanent uh, settlement uh, in America. And uh, they had come and settled initially in 1607, but by 1619, the first slaves had been brought over to the Jamestown uh, settlement. Now, it turns out that about 100 years before that, there had been other slaves brought uh, in the 1500s as well. So this is a four to 500 year history wow. of slavery in, in our country. Uh, and the founding of our country, as you move forward, we know that with the uh, revolution, with the Declaration of Independence, a beautiful document with beautiful words, but while those words are written, there's still a contradiction mm -hmm. going on. That we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. All men are created equal. Mm -hmm. And yet, people are certainly not being treated equal. People are not even considered citizens right. uh, at that point and are in bondage and uh, involuntary, involuntary bondage. And in fact, many of our uh, founding fathers, uh, many of them were slave owners. The good news is that they had an uneasy conscience about slavery and they spoke about how they struggled with it. And during the Continental Congress, there was much discussion about uh, language going into the Constitution to deal with the issue of slavery, some advocating uh, abolishing. But the problem was it was so well entrenched by that time, and there were regions of the country whose economies were so tied into, especially in the South, so tied into uh, slavery, the institution, that they needed to pick between either unity or slavery, mm. and they chose unity. And that issue of unity versus slavery was going one that was going to have to be fought literally about uh, at a later time. Right, right. So you have this real tension developing over time between slaveholding states in the South and um, non-slaveholding states in the North. As more states uh, applied for admission into the Union, this was always an issue, slavery, and whether or not this would be a slave state or a free state. And, you know, the North was trying to keep the balance of power and the South was trying to keep their power as, as well. So this tension is, is building. You get to 1857 and you have one of the most infamous, uh, one of the most infamous uh, Supreme Court decisions in our history, the Dred Scott decision. And Dred Scott was a runaway slave and he had petitioned the court for his permanent freedom. And in that case, in the Dred Scott case, the Supreme Court ruled against Dred Scott. But in it, they said that no person of African descent is entitled to citizenship in the United States. Mm -hmm. 
Now, this is now 1857. Wow. Remember, the slaves were brought over 1619, even before that. And now here we are at 1857. No person of African descent is entitled to citizenship in the United States. And they also said that the slave is the property of his, of his owner. So that was the decision. That's where we were. And of course, you'll recognize those dates, 1857, are just four years before the beginning of the Civil War. Civil War starts in uh, 1861. It goes through 1865. It ends in 1865. And in between, remember, we have the Emancipation Proclamation uh, of 1863. So the, the president, Lincoln, he declares and proclaims that the slaves will be free, but we're in the middle of a war, and the war is over this very issue. And so those states that were pro-slavery were obviously not going to follow his proclamation. So it really wasn't put into effect until the war ended. Mm -hmm. It's not until 1865 then that what was proclaimed a couple of years earlier actually was, was implemented. And there's a famous instance of this implementation at the end of the war on June the 19th of 18, 1865 in Texas. And uh, a general read the Emancipation Proclamation to slaves on that day. Mm -hmm. And they not only heard about their freedom, but they were actually given their freedom on wow. that day. And so that's why June the 19th or Juneteenth coming up this week yeah is called that, and that's why that is celebrated as a, as a, as a holiday. Uh, so uh, that's some of the history going all the way back to 1619 and before up to the Civil War. And then you had amendments, changes to the Constitution in the aftermath of the, the Civil War. 13th, 14th, and 15th, the 13th Amendment abolished slavery and enshrined that into our Constitution. The 14th Amendment said that every person who is born in the United States is a citizen of the United States in whatever state they are born in. Uh, so that gave citizenship then unequivocally. And then the uh, 15th Amendment gave the right to vote to mm -hmm. every citizen regardless of, of race. So we've got the Civil War and these amendments then ending slavery, granting the right to vote, citizenship. Uh, so everything's moving along in a good direction, but here we sit in the year 2020 and uh, still deep-seated racial tensions. Mm -hmm. So why are we still in this, in this situation? Now you would hope that if you pass a law, everybody abides by the law and everything intended by the law, then comes to fruition. But it's one thing to pass it, it's another thing for it to be enforced, it's another thing for it to be implemented. And these measures were violently opposed, and when I say violently, I mean literally violently opposed, uh, by those who lost the cause. Mm -hmm. you know, and that's a phrase in history, the lost cause. Uh, but many fought on for the cause and resented that uh, the sea change had occurred, at least on the legal level. And so uh, for black uh, citizens to be able to actually exercise their citizenship fully was literally going to be a fight mm -hmm. for over another century. And it meant lynchings. It meant lynchings in the, in the thousands. It meant the advent of the Ku Klux Klan terrorizing, I mean really a terrorist organization terrorizing uh, black, black families. It meant 
As time moves forward, the beginning of the Jim Crow system in the South, this was a system of laws, system of regulations that kept uh, blacks in their place, uh, frankly, mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the mind of those who advocated for that. Just to give you an idea, just to remind us of how bad, how pernicious this was. 1915. So now we are 50 years past the end of the Civil War, 1915, into a new century. You know, you would think 50 years, for heaven's sake, uh, we would make some real serious progress. And a movie, a motion picture is developed. Now, motion pictures are a new thing, uh, pretty much. Uh, but a movie called The Birth of a Nation uh, came out. And The Birth of a Nation was based on a book called The Klansman. And this is a movie that glorified the Klan. <laughs> glorified the Klan. It's hard to imagine now. Isn't it? Yeah. And demonized uh, African Americans. <laughs> demonized them. It portrayed the Klansmen as, uh, as, as saviors of all that's right and good and uh, African-American men as sex-crazed fiends that were preying upon white women. There's actually a scene in the movie where there's a, there's a black man. Actually, I'm quite certain I remember this correctly. It's a white man in blackface, so oh. there's the whole blackface, and then, and then chasing this white woman, and she ends up going over a cliff, and, being, and he ends up being tried for this, but he's chasing her uh, because he's, um, he's uh, looking to assault her. And so that's the way they were portrayed. And even during, uh, it also portrayed people who had been elected, black citizens who had been elected to state legislatures uh, as lazy and, and incompetent. Had pictures of them with feet in, in their state legislature with feet up on their desk. Uh, so these were all of these caricatures of African-American men in this movie. Now this movie was a blockbuster. Hmm. And get this, it got a pre-screening at none other than the White House with President Woodrow Wilson, mm. with the entire Supreme Court in attendance as well. This is 1915, this is just over 100 years ago and it's 50 years after all of these amendments were, were passed. And so impediments continued mm -hmm. to full citizenship, to full exercise of, of citizenship, like voting. If you go back to the 15th Amendment, it guaranteed that all citizens can vote. But guess what? For decades and decades, black folks couldn't vote in, in many places. And part of the reason was the Jim Crow system that had poll taxes you had to pay mm. at the polls in order to be able to vote. There were also literacy tests that had to be passed. And some of these literacy tests were designed to cause you to fail. Mm so that you couldn't vote. So you talk about voter suppression. Yeah. I mean, that was serious voter suppression based on race. Mm -hmm. uh, so you had, that, you had that going on. So how are then African Americans going to change their plight if they're really not able to vote? Yeah. And you have this system of Jim Crow laws imposed upon you. And then this comes up now, we get to uh, times that most of us know more about, and that is the protests then, the marches the boycotts, and most of us know uh, Rosa Parks. And 1955, Rosa Parks, uh, a bus in Montgomery, Alabama, refuses to give up her seat to a white man, and that begins the Montgomery bus boycott. And several years of protests in different cities uh, for full rights for African-American citizens. 
um, Selma, Alabama, and many of us know that march, and to go across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, but the Alabama state troopers pushed back, and most of us have seen those images of the dogs. We've seen images of the batons of people being beaten. We have a congressman who's been in Congress for decades now, John Lewis from Georgia. He was part of that as a young man, and he was uh, injured badly, thought he was going to die that day. Mm. There's a picture of him being beaten with a, a baton in that. But those images, being on television, played a huge role in changing attitudes of mm -hmm. people around the country. We need to do something about this. Very much like the George Floyd situation. Mm -hmm. that, that image is seared into the consciousness of all of us now. And it has uh, advanced the ball to see further reforms made. But at this time, those images on television really uh, seared the uh, conscience of, of people. That same year though, 1955, uh, there was a 14-year-old boy from Chicago named Emmett Till. And Emmett Till had uh, gone down to uh, Mississippi to visit family. Before he left, his mother told him, be careful what you say mm. to white folks when you're down there. Uh, so he's down there. He's down there with some, uh, some cousins, some relatives, and allegedly he whistled at a white woman, and she reported that to her husband. And that night, her husband and uh, another man came and pulled Emmett Till out of his bed and, uh, and murdered him, murdered him, tied a fan uh, blade around his neck and, and tossed his body into the river. They were arrested... They were tried. An all-white jury took less than an hour to find them not guilty. Wow. Uh, Emmett Till's mother up in Chicago demanded that his body be returned to Chicago and, speaking of images, uh, insisted that his casket be laid out with an open casket. And you can find that image, but it, and trust me, it's, it's a horrifying image. But she wanted that done so that the country would see what happened to her, happened to her son. And so that was printed in magazines around the country. And you're, people are starting to see, literally see, the cost of racism and the legacy then of, of slavery. And uh, those images, just like today, played a, a huge role in changing attitudes. So much so that now you get to the mid-60s, 64, 65, 1964, you have the passage of the Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. And then uh, 1965, the Civil Rights Act said that there can be no discrimination in terms of public uh, accommodations. So there will be no more white uh, water fountains and colored water fountains. There'll be no more white hotels and you know black hotels and white restaurants and seating and buses and all of that. Eliminated all of that and a number of other things. The following year, the Voting Rights Act eliminated the poll tax. It eliminated the literacy tests that had been for decades, mm -hmm. keeping people from being able to, to vote. Yeah. So a lot of the things that you're describing kind of center on the South. Hmm. And, um, you know, we, we live up north. What, what kind of things do we have to uh, think about hmm. in, in our area that's brought us to this point where we are today? Well, almost all of the Southern politicians who were involved in keeping um, African-Americans held down 
for all of those decades, uh, almost all of them were politically, at the time, Democrats. Mm. In the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s, almost all of them were, were Democrats. Uh, as an example of that, uh, he's the, the late Senate Majority Leader, Robert, Democrat Senate Majority Leader, Robert Byrd from West Virginia. Um, now, he repudiated this long ago, long before uh, he was the Senate Majority Leader, but he had been a member of the Ku Klux Klan himself. Um, Strom Thurmond was later a, a Republican senator, but prior to switching to the Republican Party, he was a, a, a member of the Dixiecrat mm. uh, Party, it's mm. called. He even ran for president. He won a bunch of, st uh, of states in the presidential election. Um, but most of them, the, and the vast majority, were, were Democrats at the time. So here in the 60s, I said that you had the Civil Rights Act, you have the Voting Rights Act. Well, the president at the time was Lyndon Johnson, and he's a Democrat. So think about the dynamic there. Mm. You have Democrat senators, uh, many of them from the South, who oppose civil rights. And you have a Democrat president who's trying to push that. And he was able to do it because of the images. Mm. It, it, it mobilized the country to force the hand uh, these southern senators still filibustered, they still opposed, <laughs> but they were able to get enough votes to, to get it done. Signed into law, both of those, by a Democrat president. Allegedly, uh, Lyndon Johnson said, when he finished uh, signing that, said to one of his aides, that we have just lost the South for a generation. Now, that would have been in the mid-60s. Well, it's not clear whether he actually said that, but whether he said it or not, it turned out to be true. Yeah. Because um, what happened uh, was that since 1964, and this is an amazing stat to me, but since 1964, a Democrat running for president has not won the white vote nationally mm. a single time. I. I'm going to say that again. Since 1964, a Democrat running for president has not won the white vote nationally a single time, hmm. not one, including Jimmy Carter, who was a white man from the South. Mm -hmm. But he didn't uh, win. The, he won the election, but he didn't win the overall, the overall white vote. Now, there's a, a logical fallacy, and it's important for me to, to throw this in. It's the uh, logical fallacy that is uh, post-hoke, ergo, proctor, hoke because fallacy. Because it comes after yeah. it's caused by. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, after this, therefore, because, because of, of this. this. Yeah. yeah. So it's Latin. It means that. So the idea is, you know, because something happened after something else, mm -hmm. that means that thing happened because of that earlier event. And the illustration that I've heard used a lot of times uh, to show how that works is Martin Luther. Martin Luther, who mm -hmm. led the Protestant Reformation, but prior to that, most of you know, he was a Roman Catholic priest, and uh, he led the Protestant Reformation. Sometimes late, sometime later, he got married. Well, in, as a Roman Catholic priest, you couldn't get married. And so for a lot of years, many, of, many Roman Catholics have said that's the reason that he left is because he wanted to get married. So because that happened after he left, therefore that's why he left. Yeah. That's why he left. 
you know, there was a little thing called justification by faith alone. Yeah. That was a <laughs> that, that, I, I heard that mattered a lot. <laughs> that was a, a, big, talked a, lot about a big part of that. So, so I, I bring that up to just say the mere fact that uh, the passage uh, of those, after the passage of those laws, a Democrat has never won the white vote for the White House does not necessarily mean that's the reason. Mm-hmm. Does not necessarily mean that, but I think we can't ignore that, that fact, one. And then we know that there are a bunch of other reasons as well. I mean, um, going into the early 70s now, we have a, a Supreme Court who is making decisions that many of us in the white evangelical community consider to be immoral. So Roe v. Wade in 73. Mm-hmm. And so that has meant for a guy like me, and so I need to you know, lay it out here then, um, I have never in my life voted for a Democrat for president. And I don't see myself ever doing that with the platform of the party as it is, being a non-pro-life, a a, uh, pro-abortion platform, and other issues like judicial philosophy and the kinds of judges that are appointed. Uh, So I don't see myself ever being able to do that under current circumstances, and I never have. So if the only reason that white people don't vote for Democrats is because they're racist, well, then that would include me as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that. I'm certainly not saying that, and we can't paint with that kind of broad brush. But it is a fact that uh, the white vote has not gone to a Democratic presidential candidate since 19, 1964. But as Christians who are active in the public square, at least through our voting, at least through our advocacy in our spheres of, of influence, we've got to be aware of how many people see it that way yeah. yeah you know even if it's not that way we need to be aware that people see it that way that people see or at least suspect that the reason you're you're supporting what you're supporting and who you're supporting is because you really are okay with the way it's with the way it's been and then of course politicians will cynically use all of that to their their own end and they will employ rhetoric that is rhetoric that is very similar to uh, times that go back to the Jim Crow era and all that. If you were to do a study of some of what you hear happening now versus what was being said back then, uh, it's a little bit frightening, mm-hmm. the similarities between, between the two. So I, but I need to make this clear. I said that you know, we've, we've obviously talked about the South, we've talked about the Civil War, and uh, we know about that history. But racism is not Southern. Racism is sinful humanity. Mm. Racism is not about a region of the country. And so you ask the question, what about us here? We've talked about the South, but what about us here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you've got racism in the North because you've got sinful people in the North. And anywhere you have that, you're going to continue to have racism. So there's specific ways that we can see that in the North, and uh, we'll be able to talk about that at some point. So before we started recording today, you were telling me a little bit about George Wallace, and this is a good story. Can you can you share that story? Yeah. So I've said that, look, uh, racism is not a region of the country, and so I want to reiterate that again. As I tell the story about, though, uh, a famous, in some ways infamous, uh, Southern politician, George Wallace, so many people may know that name. Uh, He was the governor of Alabama. He was elected in 1962. He took office in early 1963, won several terms, 
and I believe he won another term even going into the 80s, uh, believe it or not. So he was wildly popular in Alabama, so much so uh, that there was a song um, called uh, Sweet Home Alabama mm. by Leonard Skinner, those great theologians, Leonard <laughs> Skinner. And they have a line in there uh, saying that Sweet Home Alabama, and they have a line that says, in Birmingham, we love the governor. Mm. Boo, who, who? That's what it says. <laughs> in Birmingham, we love the governor. Boo, who, who? And we all did what we could do. Now, Watergate does not bother me, but does your conscience bother you? Mm. Tell me true. Sweet home Alabama, and that's that's what it says. Now, when they say in Birmingham... Every, everyone's pressing pause right now and looking that up on iTunes to, to listen to it. Go ahead, we'll wait. When they, when they say in Birmingham we love the governor, they're talking about George Wallace. Hmm. Okay, this is the governor they love. So, But here's the thing about him, is that he was a virulent uh, racist, segregationist. And when he was inaugurated in January of 63, he made this infamous statement, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Hmm. He ran for president in 1968 and again in 1972. In 68, he won five states outright in the, in the South as a third party candidate. And he won 14% of the vote as a third party candidate. Now 14% may not sound like much, but it's a ton when you're not at in one of the major parties. Mm -hmm. He was running as, a, as an independent, a third party candidate. Incidentally, do you remember the percentage Ross Perot won? I don't, I'm trying well, to, he won 20, he won nearly 20%. Okay, so that, yeah. I remember that being huge. So he did, it was huge, it is. It was uh, huge and it really had an effect on the election too. Yeah. It was a very close election between Nixon and Humphrey in 1968. So he was, he was very popular, uh, not only in the state, but in other states as well. Uh, a na nationally known figure, 72 he ran again, and during the campaign in 72, there was an assassination attempt on his life. Mm -hmm. So he was shot, and as a result of that uh, attempt, he was not able to walk, um, and he was confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. When he was in the hospital, and he was in a hospital in um, Alabama, that whole episode gives us uh, some hopeful signs for the future, and so I wanted to maybe end our time then with with that, oh. and then we can pick it up again again next week. But in '72, he's running for president, and there's another lady who's running, Shirley Chisholm. Shirley Chisholm was African American woman, first African American woman ever elected to Congress, and she's running for president as well against George Wallace and against others. But what? And Wallace is this racist, right? Mm -hmm. He gets shot, and uh, she decides that she's going to go to his hospital room in Alabama and visit with him. And he, and he did, and, and she did. And when she did, George Wallace was so amazed that she did this. And he asked her, what are your people going to say? That's the way he put it. What are your people going to say about you coming here? And she said, I know my people are angry. But I wouldn't want what happened to you to happen to anyone. And so she extended that kind of grace to him, and he was, he was moved by that. He was touched by that. Now, the reason I, I bring that up is because uh, a few years later, there's a scene with uh, George Wallace being wheeled into a black church in Alabama. And he's wheeled to the front of the church, and he says this in front of these uh, 
African-Americans at this uh, church. He says, I've learned what suffering means in a way that was impossible. I think I can understand something of the pain that black people have come to endure. I know I contributed to that pain. And I can only ask for your forgiveness. So I, I say that as a hopeful thing. It can be done. If we look at people uh, as they are, as people made in the image of God, and even if they are somebody on the opposite side of the political spectrum from us, and you take the approach that Shirley Chisholm did that says, I wouldn't want to have happened uh, to anyone what happened to you because you're a valuable human being. If we start to look at people that way, then we can start to make progress. That is a great note to end on this week. So thanks for taking the time. Uh, we'll, as the Lord allows, providentially, we'll pick this topic up again next time. Yeah, good. Thanks for watching. If you have a question you'd like us to consider, you can send that into our email address, info at cbctrenton.com, or text it to us at 97000.